traveling along the countryside in India, as I've done at different times in my life, you find something that you don't see here in the States. You'll find little temples on the roadside, not much bigger than the living room in your own house. And inside those little temples are little idols. India is, is filled with Hindus, and consequently, it's filled with thousands upon thousands of Hindu gods and their idols. So picture a Saturday afternoon, you're driving to the grocery store and you decide you want to do a little worship of one of these Hindu gods, and so you pull off on the road, you go in, you offer your worship to this wooden or metal idol in this little temple, and then you drive off and get your groceries and head home. It's that simple. All throughout the country, there are little temples with thousands of idols of false gods in a country full of false gods. Now, as unusual as this sounds to Western ears, we all have idols, things that compete with God for our worship. Idols are God substitutes. They may not be wooden or metal statues, but we battle them every day. They're all around us, and they're in our hearts. Unlike India, we don't have statues on the roadside in little temples, but we do have things that demand our worship, that demand our attention, that demand our affections, that demand from us that we worship them rather than worship the Lord God Almighty. What are your idols? The, the service has done a wonderful job so far from beginning to end. You keep hearing this theme. There are idols. There are idols you have to be scared of. But now's the time for you to think, what are my idols? What am I wrestling with? Well, we're going to consider today 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 to 40. That's on page 171 if you need the pew Bible right in front of you. Why don't you turn there? The main thing we're going to consider is Elijah's challenge to us, which can be summed up and stated in this question. How long will you waver between the Lord and your idols? How long will you waver between the Lord and your idols? There are false gods that we spend our days worshiping, and God's aim is to show you how foolish it is when we worship anything other than Him. Now, I like summarizing the whole sermon in just a sentence or two. So if you zone out later on, you're going to capture the whole thing right now in just two sentences. Here it is. There is one true God, and you must follow the Lord and abandon your idols because your idols will fail you. There is one true God, and you must follow the Lord and abandon your idols because your idols will fail you. Just a little background to our story. In, in our story, Ahab is king over Israel, and he marries Jezebel, who came from a, a land north of Israel. Here's the problem. Foreign wives brought foreign gods. Jezebel persuaded her husband to turn away from the one true God and to worship her God, which is Baal. And as the king and queen go, so also does the nation go. The entire nation was led astray 
into the worship of false gods. And that's the end of chapter 16 in 1 Kings. Then at the very beginning of chapter 17, who comes on the scene? The Lord brings the prophet Elijah who announces a famine in the land. The Lord tells him to announce a famine to all the people of Israel and to the king. Now the key thing is, why a famine? Of all things, why does the Lord to tell him to announce a famine? Well, you come to understand who the God of Baal is, you come to find out God is the God, God Baal is the God of rain. So what better way than the Lord to show who's really in charge than to take away the rain? With that background in mind, let's read chapter 18, which as I said a moment ago, if you're using that pew Bible, it's on page 171. And point number one, choose who you will serve. Point number one, choose who you will serve. And we're going to start with verses 17 to 21. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me out Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. This is Ahab's first encounter with Elijah after three years of a famine. Now, Elijah, after he made that announcement in the beginning of chapter 17, he fleed. He was gone, and he was gone for three years. So now Ahab, is, Ahab finds out that Elijah is back on the scene, and you notice what he says there. Look at verse 17. He says to Elijah, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab had lived three long years under the famine, and he blamed Elijah for the famine. But Elijah turns it right back around on Ahab. Look at verse 18. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Elijah said that that Ahab was at fault for the famine because the king had done two things. Look there. First, he had abandoned the commandments of the Lord. Remember the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then he also said, you follow the Baals. Ahab led the nation to follow the false gods of Baal and Asherah. Ahab was trying to blame Elijah for the famine, but Elijah knew who was the real troublemaker. Look there, verse 19. Elijah asked Ahab to gather the prophets of Baal and Asherah and all the people of Israel at Mount Carmel. And then verse there, there in verse 21, Elijah turns to all of Israel and he offers this challenge. How long 
will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal, then follow Him. Now picture a church with a cross on one side and a man limping on the other side. Well, uh, sorry, and an idol on the other side. And, and in between, you notice the word that Elijah uses. He says limping. So picture a man limping between the church with the cross and the idol on the other side. He's limping back and forth between one and the other. It's a pathetic picture of a limping man stumbling between two options. The Israelites were wavering between two opinions. Do they follow God or do they follow Baal? And Elijah was challenging them to choose who they're going to follow. Now, you've got all the young kids in the back and some of the kids in the service here. For you, those of you who've been parents, you remember the kids in the younger years when one of your children disobeys you. And so maybe from across the room, you ask them to come to you. Now, do the children happily come along knowing when they're in trouble? No, you know, they, they drag their feet. You know, they kind of limp along because they know what's coming. They, they don't want to come right to you and say, okay, daddy, mommy, discipline me. No, instead, they, they, they stumble along. Well, is it that the child is unable to come when you call them because they disobeyed? No, they don't want to come. There's a spiritual tug of war in their heart at that moment. They know they disobeyed. They know what's coming to them. Well, Elijah says to the Israelites, stop wavering between the Lord God Almighty and your false gods. Follow God and stop resisting. Stop dragging your feet. Stop limping along. Come to the Lord right now. Choose this day whom you will serve. That's what Elijah was saying to the people. Choose this day whom you will serve. Therein lies the challenge for the people of Israel, but also for us. Who are you going to follow? That's the challenge which God offers us today. Who will you follow? Will you follow the Lord or will you follow the idols? We all have idols, things that compete with God for our worship. Do you idolize success at your work? Maybe you're caught up in your work and so it dominates your life. Or anything that controls our life other than God, we understand to be an idol. Maybe you struggle with lust and it's wreaking havoc on your life. Maybe you want more attention from your spouse, so you manipulate them. Uh, maybe you're shaped by the opinions of others, and so you idolize what they say, and so you worship what they say. Maybe you're single and you desire to be married one day, so you worship the idea of being married. Or do you struggle with material things that give you comfort and security, like a nice home, a beautiful lawn, a nice car, a good job, a great vacation? Whatever your idol, we've got to admit, we all have them. Take a moment and get in your own minds, what are my idols? Just think for it for a second. What are the things that demand my attention? If you're not sure how to answer that question, what are, your, what are my idols? You can ask, what matters more to me than God? Now, now it's shocking to say that in Sunday morning, in fact. <laughs> Who goes around and talks like that? 
But in reality, there are idols in our heart. There are things that are competing for our worship of God. And so we've got to answer for ourselves. What, what demands our attention matters to us more than the Lord God. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, thank you for coming. What a wonderful place to be with God's people on a Sunday morning. Now, you should ask the same thing of yourself. What rules my life? What demands my attention? What's at the center of my life? And recognize that you too have things that compete for your attention and even control your life. Are the things in which you choose to build your life around satisfying to you? Are the idols that you worship really what you want out of life? Now, as Christians, we believe the only way to have lasting satisfaction is to turn to the living God and to put our trust in His Son. That, that's the one way to find true and ultimate satisfaction in this life. I'd submit to you that a job, a car, a house, a nice vacation, a good retirement plan, relationships are never ultimately meant to satisfy you. No, the things that you're turning to are never meant to carry in themselves the burden of your desires and affections. Only God can do that. God did this by sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins. And if we turn to Him and trust in Him, that will change everything for us. What makes you think that a job, a retirement account, relationships, success in this life, Whatever it is that you're worshiping, what makes you think those things will ultimately deliver and ultimately satisfy you? Now, if you disagree with me, I'd love to talk to you at the back door after the service. I'd love to have a conversation about what it is that you're trusting in and how you can worship the Lord ultimately. Now, the striking thing, look at the end of verse 21. It says, the people did not answer him a word. The Israelites' lack of response spoke volumes. The people were wavering between two gods, and they were not ready to commit. Their silence was embarrassing. Now, being in D.C. in a very young congregation, we have the blessing of doing sometimes as many as 20 to 25 to 30 weddings a year. So we, we, we officiate uh, often on a Saturday, a couple of times a year. Uh, each of the t team take turns, and so I officiate anywhere from five to eight weddings in a typical year. So I want you to picture uh, a Saturday where the family and friends are gathered. We're all in the sanctuary of the church. The groom is up front looking dashing in his outfit with all the men next to him. And the bride comes in with her father in a beautiful gown. She comes forward as everyone stands. I welcome everyone, and, and everyone's seated, and we offer prayers. We read scripture. We sing. And we get to that part of the service when I look at the groom. Let's just call him Darren. I say, Darren, do you take Sarah to be your wedded wife? And he says, I do. Then I look at Sarah, and I say, Sarah, do you take Darren to be your wedded husband? And she doesn't say anything. She just stares at him. And with each passing moment, it starts getting awkward because we're all watching and wondering what's going on with Sarah. 
And it gets more and more embarrassing with each passing moment. Is Sarah okay? What's going on? Is she second-guessing? Is she, what's happening there? Well, it's no different for the Israelites. Their silence was communicating to God, I have not made up my mind if I'm going to follow you. I have not made up my mind, and I don't know whether it's worth it to follow you. I like my idols, and I'm not ready to give up my idols for you. The God of the universe has sent his prophet to call the Israelites back to himself, and yet the people were not ready to give up their false gods. That's why that silence was embarrassing. They were non-committal at best. So the question for you is, are you ready? Are you ready to commit yourself to God and give up your idols? There's a daily battle that each one of us face, and this is the question we need to ask every morning. Who will I follow? Who will I trust today? Who will I worship? Who will I love? Who will I give my life to? That's the question we have to examine every day of our life. We will worship our idols or we will worship the one true God. That's the choice that we have. And if you believe the God of the Bible is true, then you can trust ultimately in Him. So there's another reason why we should choose to follow God and reject our idols. And that's point number two. Your idols will fail you. Point number two. Your idols will fail you. And that's verses 22 to 29. Starting at verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. So Elijah explains to the people of Israel a sudden death competition between himself and the prophets of Baal. Look at verse 22, Elijah points out that he's outnumbered. Then verse 23, Elijah explains the preparations for the offering, that each side gets a bowl, that they get to cut it up and prepare it for the altar. And then you see there in verse 24 is the key. They each get to call upon their God, and the God who answers by fire in this sudden death competition, he will be declared the real God. The only the true God who answered by fire would be proved to be the true God the real God in this competition between the prophets. Let's continue on in verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry out, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is 
on the journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out from upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and no one paid attention. So look there, verse 25. Elijah turns to the prophets of Baal, and he gave them the same instructions for the sudden death competition. Do you notice that Elijah allowed them to go first? In a sudden death competition, when the first God who sends fire wins, why is Elijah letting them go first? After all, this is a sudden death competition. Maybe he's allowing them to go first because he wants to show good sportsmanship. Is that what's going on there? Well, he lets the prophets of Baal pick their bull first. He lets them have a bigger team. He lets them call in their God. Now, Elijah, don't you know this sun death competition? What are you doing? Why are you letting them go first? Well, Elijah let the prophets of Baal go first because he's confident that Baal is not a God. That's why he lets them go first. He wasn't scared. He knew that if the prophets went first, it was going to amount to nothing. There was going to be nothing that happened, that their efforts were going to be useless. And in fact, he's right. Look at verse 26. The prophet picks a bull, prepares it, and they call upon Baal all morning. And the text says, there was no voice and no one answered. Then verse 27, Elijah resorts to holy mockery of the prophets. And then verse 28, they break out in a religious frenzy, crying out and cutting themselves out of desperation, hoping that their frantic activity might provoke an answer from Baal. But the text says again, look there, verse 29, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Do you notice? The narrator doesn't even say Baal didn't answer. He doesn't stoop that low. (laughs) No, the narrator doesn't even stoop so low to admit the existence of Baal. Instead, he says, no one answered. No one answered. No one answered because Baal is not a god. He's fake. He's bogus. He's a non-entity. He's false. Therefore, Elijah had nothing to worry about. He had nothing to worry about in this sudden death competition. Now put yourself in the position of the prophets of Baal. They had built their whole life around this false god. And when it came time to Baal to deliver in this sudden death competition, Baal didn't answer because Baal didn't exist. Do you expect too much of your idols? Here's the warning. If if, if you build your life around false gods, you're going to find that those false gods will fail you. Your idols ultimately will fail you. It's futile to build your life around these kinds of idols. All of us have hearts 
that are idol factories. So we generate idols that demand our worship. How do you know what an idol is? Well, look what happens when your idols are actually taken away. Thousands of men committed suicide after the economy tanked in 2007. You know why that is? The Journal of British Psychiatry in a study showed that the suicide rate among men skyrocketed over the first few years after the financial crisis. What happened? Too many men worshipped their wealth. When their wealth was taken away, they no longer thought life was worth living. Let me give you another example. You know how many parents have come to me in a deep depression after their children, who had professed faith at some time, went wayward? How much idolatry they had put into their children, building their life around their kids? Or yet another example. I'm in Washington, D.C. It's a city full of workaholics, people who build their life around their careers. And you know, when they get fired, you know how much it's crushing to them? How much they show up as if they are now a huge failure because they no longer can work in their job? The losses show what these people are really worshiping. What about you? Remember the idol I asked you to get in your mind a few minutes ago. Has your idol delivered on its promises? Has it delivered on what you'd want out of life? The only reason why you turn to an idol is because your idol gives you something. I worship my job because it gives me success or respect or a lot of money. I worship retirement because it gives me security about my future. I worship time off or my vacation because it gives me comfort or rest. Your idols give you temporary satisfaction, comfort, security, prestige, respect, entertainment, pleasure, happiness. But in the end, are they giving you lasting satisfaction? Has it amounted to what you want? In the end, what you'll find is that the idols will not deliver on their promises in the way that you had hoped. Now, yesterday, as we did the seminar, Blake very kindly gave out a number of the books I've either authored or edited. I remember a number of years ago, as I had the opportunity to write my first book, the staff very kindly, when we're, we're in this place of being able to write a book, gives us time off for a sabbatical. So I did lots of research in getting prepared to write this book, and then I had a few months off, and so I found this room in the basement of the church, brought all of my books, had a little table, a little, in fact, table TV stand with a folding chair. I went into a corner of the church, had all my books stacked, and for two months, from 8.30 to 5.30, Monday through Friday, I sat there at that table with my laptop, and I typed away until two months later, I had 16 chapters in my first book. And so you think, all right, I'm ready to hand in the manuscript. So I did, and, I, and you think it's all done. But no, you go through multiple rounds of editing with multiple editors, and then you have to work on endorsements and getting people to read your book, convince them it's worth reading, and then get endorsements. Then you have to pick a cover. There's a whole process behind it. So it truly is a labor of love. But I was excited. You know, I had set this goal of becoming an author one day, and here it was happening. And so I'm in the middle of the process, and I'm working at it, and working at it, and working at it. And then the day came. What the, the, the printers do is in the first print run with a book, they'll often pull one of the first books and they'll mail it to the author as a congratulations. 
And so it was the day when I got to the mailbox and the copy of the first book arrived. And I knew what it was when I saw the envelope and I pulled it open and I pulled out the book and I looked at the cover and I liked it and I flipped through. I was looking through the chapters and I was excited. Here it is. Here's the book. I've been working on this for months. I, I got a copy. And then this sense of emptiness set in. And I thought, is that it? After all this sweat and blood and tears? Is that all it amounts to? I, 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 had, set self, I had set this goal of being an author, but really behind it was this, this, this corrupt idol of self-glory, of wanting to exalt my own name. And there are good motives behind it of helping other people and discipling others, but I realized how much there was idolatry in my own heart. But in that moment, the sense of emptiness set in. That moment of success actually turned out to not be what I thought it would be. It didn't amount to this kind of happiness that I thought it might give. Do you really think your idols will give you lasting satisfaction? Mine didn't. Mine never have. They've never given me the kind of satisfaction that lasts forever. No, in fact, only the one true God can ever ultimately satisfy you and help satisfy your deepest longings. Now, Elijah was so confident that Baal didn't exist that he resorted to holy mockery in verse 27. Elijah wanted to expose Baal as a fraud and a huckster. He took the opposing prophet's God and he reduced them to human terms with human limitations. Now, some of you are looking at this verse and think, aha, an excuse for sarcasm. I've been looking for a Bible verse that allows me to be sarcastic. This is the one. Well, this isn't it. It's holy mockery. Elijah's goal is to disprove Baal as a god before he proves the God of the Bible as the one true God. What he's doing is he's trying to reduce Baal to human terms. So what we're seeing here is that he's resorting to holy mockery. Now when it comes to our worship of idols or the Lord God Almighty, we're, we're talking about a difference between eternal life and eternal death. So Elijah's holy mockery is much more important than our day-to-day -day travails into sarcasm. Now we've seen that our false gods will fail us. Now that Elijah has thoroughly disproved Baal as a god, what's he going to do? He's going to turn back to Israel and show them who is the one true God. So that brings us to point number three. Turn your heart back to God because he's the one true God. Point number three. Turn your heart back to God because he is the one true God. And that's verses 30 to 40. When Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as the wood contained two sheaves of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. 
And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah, the prophet, came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Look at verse 30 and 31. Elijah repairs the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. The neglect of this altar probably showed how far gone things had become with the people of Israel pursuing Baal in worship. Then you see there, verses 32 to 35, Elijah makes the preparations for the offering. And then he has them dig a trench around the altar and pour four jars of water onto the altar three times. The people of Israel knew that wet things don't burn. That's why Elijah was having them pour the water three times. Elijah wanted to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the God who would bring down fire from heaven. Now, in contrast to the prophets of Baal's frenzy and activity, Elijah comes near the offering and he offers a very simple prayer. Look at verse 36, you see why Elijah offered this prayer. He wanted to show that God was the real God and that Elijah had done all of this as his servant, according to God's very own words. And then look there in verse 37. He asked God to answer him so that the people will know that the Lord is God and that God, and notice the word you, that you, God, is the one who will turn the Israelites' hearts back to him. Elijah wants the Israelites to know God and to know that God turned their hearts back to him. That's what verse 37 is saying, that you have turned their hearts back. He's saying the Lord God Almighty is the one who has turned their hearts back. Astounding, isn't it? Elijah's God is a reconciling God. He is a God who reconciles idolaters. No more wavering. No more limping between God and their idols. If the Israelites would not commit, then God Himself would rescue them from their wicked ways. God turned their hearts back to Him. So the same God that covered Adam and Eve with animal skins and promised a seed would defeat Satan one day is the same God who brought Joseph's family back to him in a foreign land, is the same God who sent Moses to free the people of Israel from Pharaoh's death grip, is the same God who parted the seas, is the same God who brought water from a rock and manna from heaven, is the same God who brought the Israelites to the promised land, is the same God who would send Jesus to reconcile sinners for their sake. 
The same God would send his son to die on the cross so that they could turn their hearts, he could turn their hearts back to him. He could reconcile his children back to himself. A greater prophet than Elijah, Jesus, would not just only call down God's judgment, but he would then lay down on the altar and receive God's judgment for them. Our God is a reconciling God. Take heart, whoever you are, no matter what your idolatry is. God doesn't leave us in our foolishness. No, in fact, He does the work for us by sending Jesus for us so that as idolaters we can be reconciled back to Him. He comes and rescues us through His Son's death on the cross. Now, notice what happens in verse 38. Fire comes down from heaven. It not only consumes the burnt offering in the wood, but it licks up all the water in the trenches. Now, have you ever wondered, why fire? You know, why fire from heaven? Why, 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 why this kind of thing? Now, if you're in D.C. with us, as the Boylsons were for many years, on the 4th of July, one of the fun things we get to do as a staff is all the staff and their kids and families go up to the, uh, to, to the roof of the church, and on top of the roof, you can look out over the mall and see the Washington Monument and see this amazing pyrotechnical display of fireworks on the 4th of July. All the kids are gathered on the roof. All the parents are standing behind, making sure they don't jump off the roof as the fireworks go off. And it's an amazing display every year. Well, have you ever wondered, you know, is this just some kind of amazing pyrotechnical display, the most amazing one you would have ever seen? Because it's, after all, fire coming down from heaven. Well, no, look at verse 28. The point of the fire is that the God who answered by fire is the true God. It proved that the God of the Bible is the one true real God to be worshipped. Now, you can't adopt Elijah's evangelism techniques, can you, in your office place? You know, imagine you're evangelizing some atheist or agnostic in your workplace and you decide in order to convince him that your God, the God of the Bible, is the true God, you stand up on one of your work desks and you say, Oh God, bring fire down right now and prove that you are the real God. No, your boss would fire you, wouldn't he? This guy's gone crazy. <laughs> I don't care if he believes the Bible. This is crazy. No, we got to ask when we, we pray to God, does he hear us? How do we know that He hears us? we got to ask today, God, answer us if you're real. And we wonder, does He hear us? God has answered us today, hasn't He? He answers our prayers. I don't know if you've ever done this. It's a wonderful thing to write down your prayers and then later go back later and recount how often God answers our prayers, often in ways that we don't expect. And, and, and we, we know clearly that He has answered us because most clearly we know it because He sent His Son. That, that's the definitive reason we know that God answers us, because He sent His Son to reconcile us back to Him. And then there in verse 29, look at that. The people of Israel saw the fire from heaven and they turned back to God. They fell on their faces and declared twice, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So just like the Israelites responded, so also 
This message demands something from you. What are you going to do with your idols? Are you going to abandon them? Are you going to repent of them? Are you going to turn from them? And are you going to turn to God and trust in His Son? 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to reconcile idolaters back to Himself so that we don't have to do this on our own. So that you and I don't have to wake up every day and say, how am I going to get over my idolatry? No, God sent Jesus so that we have a clear answer. Trust in my Son. That's what God says. Trust in Jesus. Because He came to reconcile us so that we don't have to be dominated by idols anymore. There is hope. No matter who you are. If you think you're beyond God's kingdom, that's not true. I've had the privilege as a counselor sitting on the front row and watching a lot of people with wicked idolatry be reconciled back to God and to see what God can do through His Son. So take hope. Your idols will fail you, but God says, my Son can save you. So listen to my Son. Whoever you are, turn from your idols and trust in Christ today. What better day than to trust in Christ and give up your idols than today? Then look at verse 40. Now, everything we've talked about so far are the, the parts of the children's book stories that you hear when you, you read the prophet Elijah. But verse 40 is never included, is it? Elijah has the Israelites seize the prophets of Baal and he has them slaughtered. The prophets had committed treason against the God Almighty. And so this is a picture of God's judgment of those who reject him of those who give themselves over their idols, and even worse, those who lead others into the worship of false gods. So this might seem pretty drastic. My goodness, he slaughters all of them down by the riverside. And yet, what this is, is the warning to us. It's meant to be a, a reminder of judgment, that if you don't turn from your idols, there is judgment that is to come. And so take heed of it as a warning. Who are you going to follow? It's a stark warning to all of us to repent of our idolatry and to trust that Christ is the only way. So recognize that today. Don't delay. Don't wait one single moment. Turn from those idols and trust in His Son. Now we should conclude. Now if you were with my daughter and I on a uh, Sunday afternoon after church, we usually grab our food and then we head down to the TV in the basement because we're both NFL junkies. We're, we're ready to start watching the game on Sunday afternoon, watch the Washington Commanders lose yet again <laughs> on a typical Sunday afternoon. Now, one of the NFL's greatest quarterbacks of all time is the former New England Patriots quarterback, now Tampa Bay Buccaneer quarterback, Tom Brady. And at the age of 44, he has won seven Super Bowls and has accomplished basically every kind of stat you can ever ima imagine for an NFL quarterback. In his college years, he was known as the comeback kid at the University of Michigan because he would often pull out the game in the second half when they were pretty far behind in a game. Now, this super successful quarterback who's racked up every NFL statistic for a quarterback you can imagine has accomplished any kind of dream you'd ever think a quarterback could achieve. He has this happy life, and you'd expect him to be truly content 
having reached the top of his game and having reached the top of his world. And yet, in an interview in 60 Minutes, for 60 Minutes a number of years ago, I was surprised to hear this super successful quarterback, Tom Brady, say, why do I have seven Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life is, but I think there has got to be more out there than just this. And the interviewer looked at him and said, Tom, what's the answer? And Brady just shook his head and said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Well, you can have all the idols you want, and they still won't deliver, will they? Tom Brady had all the idols he'd ever wanted to achieve when it came to being the greatest NFL quarterback in history. And yet even he, at the top of his game, said, there's got to be something more out there. Well, only the true God will satisfy. Will you give up your idols today and trust in Christ? Does Christ matter to you more than everything else in your life? Let's pray together. Lord God, we know that there are idols in our hearts. We know that we struggle with them. And we want this very day to trust in Christ and to give up our idols. So we ask you to turn our hearts back to you. And we pray this all in your Son's blessed name. Amen.